Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 7th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Noah Rothman is off promoting his book. Christine Rosen is out this week. And we are thrilled to have with us today um, on the news, just right on top of the news, our dear friend, longtime commentary contributor and biographer, non-pare, Andrew Roberts. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much indeed, um, John. It's great to be on the show again. Uh, we have, uh, just in case uh, anybody within the ambit of my voice does not know, Andrew has a biography of King George III uh, out, uh, has been out for a couple of months. This, of course, follows his biographies of Churchill and his biography of Napoleon and his uh, book on um, uh, the the storms of war on this on the Second World War, his book on uh, on the 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 great aides to the 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 number two number three guys who helped win the Second World War, uh, just a, a list of wonderful things and great contributions to commentary. But Andrew, we have you here because as you as you know better, way better than I. Uh, just a few hours ago, Boris Johnson stood before a microphone in front of 10 Downing Street and resigned his premiership of Great Britain after three extremely uh, tumultuous years. I just want to go back and tell you a story about you and me and Boris Johnson, which is that uh, the night that Brexit passed, um, something for which you had been uh, agitating, let's say, or been a, a deep uh, supporter for, uh, you know, since 2005, passed in 2016, I believe, right? I mean, you, th this was a... This yeah, was no, I've been advocating it for it. Actually, I wrote, a, I wrote a dystopian novel about it back in 1994. So, so they, I've been pushing for Brexit, <laughs> Brexit, you know, for most of my life. Right, right. And so um, when, when Brexit passed and you told me it was like the happiest day of your life and the... Uh, um, uh, David Cameron, the prime minister, uh, resigned uh, upon its passage since he had been advocating for its uh, for its uh, defeat. And um, you uh, this went almost immediately from uh, exhilaration on your part to deep worry because you looked at the balance of forces when Brexit had passed and looked at and, and Boris Johnson was clearly he had sort of been the leading voice in wanting it passed. Then he said he wasn't going to run. There was no provision for who was going to do it. Then you were worried he was going to run. You have had very mixed feelings about Boris Johnson as a political leader from the time that he became a political leader. Would that be a fair point? Um, I was always very much in favor of him as mayor of London. Um, I thought that he was he was great as mayor of London, but you're right. And at the time that he uh, that the um, Brexit vote took place, I was worried um, whether or not he'd be up to the job as prime minister. This was something that, uh, of course, his friend and mine, Michael Gove, also uh, made those sort of public doubts. Um, and uh, and in the end, he didn't stand, and uh, and Theresa May became prime minister. Uh, instead, but um, but actually, once he had once he did become prime minister in two thousand and nineteen, um, I think I was amongst his his toughest supporters. I was really very very excited about the idea of having him 
uh, face off against um, against Jeremy Corbyn. So uh, this is a pretty staggering fall. If you think about the the order of battle between the two parties in in, in Great Britain, they're the leading parties, right? Labour and Labour and the Tories. Uh, uh, Johnson came in having won uh, the largest uh, majority for his party in 30 years, and by some reckonings, one of the largest victories in terms of seats any party had won, you know, outside of a gen- genuine crisis, uh, you know, in in British in modern British history. And here he is three years later with a with his entire party basically defenestrating him. Um, kind of a staggering high low series of events for him. That's right. And um, to explain it, I think you need to see long term and short term, you know, uh, like we were all taught at school, you know, when you're doing an essay on the outbreak of the First World War or whatever it is, you have to have long term and short term reasons. And uh, the long term one was that, of course, Brexit itself did set him up against a huge number of um, of uh, Tories, people who were Remainers, who uh, wanted Britain to stay in the European Union, hated um, Boris. Now, it's not true. It's a sort of one of those Venn diagram ideas. It's not true that everyone who hates Boris is a Remainer, but it is true that every Remainer hates Boris. And there was still quite a lot in the Tory party. And of course, um, the majority of the of the Labour Party and the uh, and the Liberal Party. So you have a lot of people, especially in the media, who uh, just can't wait for the fall of Boris Johnson because of the Brexit vote. Then on top of that, in the more short term, you have the um, COVID crisis, and he was um, uh, somebody who, of course, led the lockdown, but also led the huge bailout that was our um, furlough scheme, extremely expensive, but it turns out it kept a lot of businesses running. And you then have um, the, uh, the breaking out of the, of the lockdown as well, which uh, we did quite early on, largely because of the, of the vaccines that we managed to get. And in each of those decisions, he managed to um, lose supporters because of various COVID-related um, uh, beliefs. And then you finally have the sexual um, issue that comes about as a result of um, this, uh, this scandal um, to do with a Conservative MP, um, rather a Dickensian name of Chris Pincher, considering what he was responsible for, and, um, and the passes that he made in the Conservative Club, the, uh, the Carlton Club, and the way in which uh, uh, Boris's government dealt with that so you in all of those sort of three periods and there there was another scandal which I'm afraid is just too arcane and complicated <laughs> really Frank to go into uh, to do with Owen Patterson and the um and the House of Commons Privileges Committee and whether or not this uh, this chap was to be suspended for however many days stroke weeks and that also he, uh, Boris lost uh, uh, lost some friends over um and you have these things come together, and despite the fact that, as I'm sure we'll get onto later on in this uh, in this conversation, despite the fact that he got so many things right, including, of course, uh, Ukraine very early on, really important things, 
uh, in British politics as well, um, they are enough to, or they seem to have been enough, well, they are enough to have brought everyone together to, to drag him down. So just to, just to sort of get, what we have here is a coup, that is to say, an internal or an internal revolt inside his own party and inside his own government that said he can no longer, he can no longer continue the coup taking the form of mass resignations, thus leaving him with, you know, uh, precious little support, the possibility of a, of a, of a, another parliamentary action or rewriting of certain government rules that would then have allowed his official removal. Um, so what you're saying is that uh, his enemies were loaded for bear for him from the start, and they were significant in number, but certainly not enough in number not to understand that he had led the party to this unprecedented uh, high watermark. Uh, but then they were jo- th- then he was joined by, and this is my question, are these Cassius's or Antony's? Like, are they people, are the people who brought him down, are they hungry? for power and saw him as the complete and total uh, ambition killer because he was there and going to be there forever or or are they were they sort of just finger in the wind in his resignation speech he said quite startlingly i thought that he saw the herd mine take over at westminster that that people uh, tories uh, simply were sort of giving in to a mob mentality to get rid of him which uh, I believe he believes it's kind of a startling thing to hear someone say on his way out the door that he was that he was, uh, you know, he was stabbed uh, in the back and in the front by a hive mind. But nonetheless, is he right? There are both there are both both Antony's and Cassius's and sometimes the Antony's become Cassius's and vice versa. Um, there's also I think with regard to the um, to the uh, Cassius's, we're going to have at least I would say 10, maybe a dozen people stand for the leadership. And so if you think about each of them, their key supporters, the eight people that they need to sign their nomination papers, they're right away, you've got 80 or 90 um, would be Cassiuses uh, who, are, um, uh, who were essentially waiting to, to, um, to continue your analogy, plunge the knife in the, in the back of... Uh, of Caesar. But with regard to the Antonys, there are an awful lot of them as well. And this really comes as a regard, um, of course, because of what we call party gate. And um, it's uh, and the suffix gate, thanks to you, Americans, is attached to absolutely every scandal come what may, but nonetheless, in this case, it's about as <laughs> yeah, you can well, apologize, I apologize as you, for you like, our, but apologize nothing for can violence. be done about it now, John. Yes, our violence <laughs> to the English language there, on behalf no, of no. all Americans. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's too late to, for me to whinge about something like that. But, I, but uh, let me tell you, a, a, a scandal further removed from Watergate, it's very difficult to uh, <laughs> imagine because it's about, um, it's about uh, Boris having attended some parties which he didn't consider were parties, at um, Downing Street during lockdown. Uh, one of them, of course, after he had very nearly died in, uh, of COVID himself. Um, others were given as uh, goodbye um, events. He considered them to be work events. I must admit the photographs of them make them so dire and so dreadful and, and, uh, and um, 
attended by civil servants rather than anything, you know, out of Evelyn War, the Bullingdon Club, you know, from uh, Decline and Fall or anything like of that kind. And um, and they were, um, but they were um, illegal at the time. And so this was the thing that created an awful lot of opponents to um, to Boris. He was fined for it. There's a very good chance in the next couple of days, by the way, that the leader of the opposition and his deputy are also going to be uh, fined. But um, but that will be too late to um, to affect Boris in any way, obviously. Um, now, these these parties, which um, uh, you, won't be, you wouldn't believe over here, the amount of, uh, of sort of indignation, a lot of it mock indignation, in my view, that the um, politicians have managed to create over, over um, Boris and Partygate. But nonetheless, um, it's been uh, completely sort of blanketed and wall to wall for months now. It's been trumpeted by the media in that resignation speech that you mentioned. Um, Boris talked about pretty relentless sledging. Uh, I don't know if you have the expression sledging in, uh, in America. It, it, it's basically um, a sort of sporting term for people um, attacking you and, and slagging you off and being rude about you pretty much constantly. And, um, and this is what's happened ever since Partygate. And Partygate's been going on for many months now, and it's been a drip, drip, drip that has weakened uh, Boris and seems to have not been affected in any way by all of the positive things that Boris has done. And it's tremendously important, I think, to remember you know, all of the various great achievements that he's already done, not least, as I say, being, uh, being the first person to send lethal aid to help Zelensky, uh, being able to, um, to get the vaccine rollout, which meant that we have per capita fewer Britons killed in, uh, by by um, COVID than Italians and Germans and French and Spanish and so on. Um, and, uh, and, and other really major achievements which have been completely forgotten because of these, um, these party gates and, and various sex scandals. I, I have a question, Andrew. Uh, because he was uh, taken down by things like party gate and uh, the pincher scandal, um, circumstances that are really um, more personal than they are political, uh, more having to do with h- the man, his conduct, his uh, not being forthcoming. Um, to what extent does this hurt the conservative brand in the UK going forward, or is he, or is, um, is he a separate issue from that? Well, the the opposition parties, of course, are trying to uh, connect the whole Conservative Party and certainly the cabinet to these um, scandals, or so-called scandals. By the way, I don't think all of them are huge scandals anyway. With regard to Mr. Pincher, he was trying to give this, uh, this um, gay guy a, um, a second chance, essentially. And, uh, and then three years later, he, he, I believe he genuinely had forgotten about the uh, circumstances of it. But um, nonetheless, you know, he's gone now and we can all, historians can pore over the details of of what's a genuine scandal and what's something that the BBC and uh, and the rejoiners and the um, and the opposition and Tory haters of Boris and a few other people can and the Cassiuses and the Antonys um, can turn into a scandal. Um, but to answer your question, I think that um, it's a uh, it's something that is very much ad hominem against him. 
I don't think that when you get a new leader, that um, especially if it's somebody who wasn't in any way involved in Party Gate or Fincher or so on, um, that it's going to uh, damage the Tory brand. I mean, uh, the polling right now, right, suggests that um, Labour has a leg up on 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 the Tories for the first time in 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 many years. But but that is very specific. In fact, you could say this could be a salvation for the Conservative brand if those numbers were driven down by discontent with Boris himself. Boris himself being removed from the picture, uh, you could have a new honeymoon with a new leader. That was certainly the case with with Theresa May, who was installed after after Cameron's resignation, who had a pretty good six months or so until her cluelessness and absolute lack of political skill uh, took her down, I think. Um, uh, how do you game out the next couple of months? You say sort of eight or nine people are going to run. Um, yeah. Um, well, actually, you're going to, um, you're quite right. I mean, first of all, um, the, the the incoming person, assuming they're not involved in party gate, and one of the one of the leaders w- uh, of the front runners was in fact um, fined also uh, over um, over party gate. I mean, fined the equivalent of one hundred and ten dollars. But we're not talking about this. Is not sort of uh, you know one of these one of these massive um, massive uh, scandals. But nonetheless, um, it, assuming it's uh, somebody who who hasn't got a direct connection to Partygate, then yes, there's a very good opportunity for the Conservatives to reboot. They are 10% behind, but um, it, it's midterm. You know, the, the governing party is always behind in midterm. I can't think of a, historically, of a time when the governing party doesn't lose by-elections midterm. And so it is allowed, uh, the, the, whoever becomes the new leader is going to have a couple of years before they, you know, we don't need another general election until the December of 2024. And um, so there's plenty of time, assuming that they're able to get a grip on the economy and deal with inflation and so on, why the Conservatives shouldn't win the next uh, general election. Um, there is a sense, obviously, of ennui that you always get once you've been in power for 12 years. Um, so it won't automatically be a particularly easy thing to do. But uh, the Labour Party has, um, has not... Uh, yes, it's ten points ahead, but um, but that's uh, that can be dealt with. Not least because their leader is tremendously uncharismatic. So their leader, Keir Starmer, um, has done one very creditable thing, I believe, which is he has he has taken steps to address the anti-Semitism crisis within the Labour Party. Or it, it, do you you agree with that, or am I being totally? Yeah, wrong? yeah. It's the best. Okay. It's the best. It's by far and away the best thing he's done. Um, that you could argue that apart from perhaps burying the hatchet over Brexit, it's actually the only thing he's done, um, owing to the fact that he, oh, and, and, and of course, capitalising as well as he possibly could over Partygate. You know, he's a former director of public prosecutions, a sort of national um, uh, um, district attorney, as it were. And so, you know, you'd expect him to be very good and forensic in the questioning of uh, something like uh, Partygate. But what he hasn't done is to uh, infuse the, the people or indeed his party terribly much over any uh, kind of vision. He doesn't seem to have one of those. So um, I just want to ask one more question about the about the the end of Boris and and whether he showed a degree of fecklessness. 
um, because uh, obviously you follow this granularly and we here don't, but obviously he was, uh, he had a personnel crisis of a kind when his, you know, people who sort of describe him as his Carl Rove or something like that, uh, Dominic Cummings, um, the arc who was also described as the architect of Brexit, though I, that seems a little uh, maybe excessively grand or something like that. But of course, uh, he he had a very public uh, separation from from Boris, and then kind of uh, publicly went after his jugular in a way that you almost never see. I mean, it's a little like. Uh, it's a little like what people sort of want from somebody. It's, it's sort of like what happened to certain people who went after Trump uh, after resigning from the Trump administration. But of course, this really would be like if Karl Rove quit and then went after George W. Bush. Um, how much did was that the beginning of the end or is that entirely separate from from all of this? Um. Uh, yes, I think in, in retrospect, we can see that it was the beginning of the end. Um, Dominic was, in fact, a, a, a really important and key architect of, uh, of Brexit. He did come up with a lot of the best lines that, um, you know, that got Brexit uh, true and indeed that got, um, that got Boris elected. The question was whether or not he should then have been taken into government. And whether or not his uh, his tremendous talents um, were essentially campaigning talents rather than governing talents, and uh, Boris came to the conclusion that they were campaigning rather than governing, and sacked him. And uh, as you say, there was this uh, from that moment on, there was this tremendous sort of um, uh, nemesis figure, um, you know, haunting him in in, uh, in Dominic. And what Dominic had was the inside scoop and would, on a very regular basis, when Boris um, said something in public, uh, would um, accuse the Prime Minister of lying and say, uh, I was actually at that particular meeting and this is what happened. And uh, this carried on for, well, has carried on obviously for um, a couple of years and is, uh, is and has been immensely debilitating. So, I mean, uh, Dominic, I imagine we'll be uh, celebrating tonight having uh, having brought the prime minister down which is what something he's been trying to do for a long time um but uh i don't know where where he goes from here i mean he, he's a, he he's achieved his his sort of ambition um but uh, it's it's a, a, and he did it in a in a in a you know clinical and absolutely devastating way um which is uh is, is really sort of making people reach for Shakespearean parallels, frankly, um, about the way it happened. Right. So if there are Cassius's and, uh, and Antony's, so he's more an Iago. Or, I was uh, about to say Iago, yeah. but Iago was the, was the first yeah. and, and classic uh, um, yeah. example. And exactly. And, and you and I are not the first people to come I'm up sure with that. Not. Uh, analogy. I'm sure not. So um, can I, I, I just want to, yeah. I have a question. It, it, and it, I'm only asking for you to to speculate because that's all that's all that can be done here. But what, what I would love to know is where Boris goes from here. Actually, I mean, because I, I find him an endlessly fascinating character. Yeah, and um, I I think actually that um, uh, that this is not going to be in any way the end of the world for Boris. Um, he is um, a he's an abundant figure. He's a very very good. 
public speaker, of course, uh, after dinner speaker, which um, I'm sure lots of people will hire him for. I think if I were a CEO, I would be uh, willing to shell out a lot to have him as a keynote speaker who you know would um, both intrigue and amuse, but also um, um, provoke thought in your uh, clients at your at your conference. Uh, he's going to write books. He's um, he's a bit late with his Shakespeare book, but uh, uh, he's going to write, of course, an autobiography, which I um, am certain will be a massive international bestseller. Um, I, some prime ministers sit on the back benches in the House of Commons and fume and hate every day um, that they're not prime minister. I really don't think, I think that Boris has got easily a big enough hinterland. Um, the one thing I'm worried about is that he might start branching into writing history books. Uh, because he, uh, I don't want him as a as a rival um, historian. I can tell you, his uh, his book on Churchill sold huge numbers and did extraordinarily well. And so overall, I think um, he's going to have a, a happy rest of his life, which is not always true of, of former prime ministers. It is also not always true of former prime ministers that they remain former prime ministers. I mean, it, it, one of the things about the prime ministerial system, particularly if what we have here are relative misdemeanors in the world of, you know, political crimes, uh, despite mm. the seriousness of the hypocrisy charge on the on Partygate, that that ordinary people were being subjected to a kind of regime of control that the well-to-do and the political elites decided uh, simply they didn't have to abide by. And that's a very, very potent uh, political charge to levy. And when it goes off, it goes off very loudly. But, you know, in time and again, in parliamentary systems, people recover and return to power after having been, I mean, you know, Yitzhak Rabin, Bibi Netanyahu, obviously, possibly Bibi Netanyahu a third time now, uh, uh, given the given the circumstances. Um, and he's 58 uh, years old. I mean, he's yeah, not... Yeah. Uh, but- my, the question would be whether he'd want to. I think not. Secondly, we don't really have the same thing in English politics. Um, the, to, to have gaps when you're no, when you're not leader of the opposition is next to unknown. We don't have a sort of Charles de Gaulle, Colombe de Deux Eglises kind of, equi- right. uh, of, equi- of equivalent. Uh, and also, why on earth would he want to? You know, he's he's uh, he's going to move on to the next stage of his life now. Um, if he had wanted to, if he did want to do that kind of thing, um, he would need a Borisite group in the House of Commons, a, 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 a people who sort of toasted the king over the water, as it were. And that doesn't exist. He he never went out of his way to create a, a Borisian party uh, <laughs> within the Conservative Party uh, in the way that there was an identifiable Thatcherite party um, in the Conservative Party for many years after the fall of Margaret. So there's, um, so I think that he, he probably doesn't want to do it. He'd find it difficult to do anyway. Um, and, um, and so I don't think that, uh, that that's going to be on his agenda at all. Okay, well, uh, let me pause for a second and talk to you about today's sponsor, uh, the Good Faith Effort podcast. The Bible has played a pretty important role in American society from the founding era until today. In our politics, our pop culture, our our broader, wider culture. Have you ever wondered exactly how the Good Faith Effort podcast will tell you, hosted by Ari Lamb? 
historian, rabbi, pop culture aficionado, Good Faith Effort brings on incredible guests each week from the worlds of politics, history, music, movies, faith, even venture capital to host the kind of conversations you literally will not hear anywhere else. Can hear a historian explain how the Talmud played a decisive role in political philosophy during the English Civil War. Hear a legendary hip-hop exec talk about how Abraham and the Book of Genesis helped him see Run DMC in a new light. Hear one of the world's leading tech investors explain how the prophet Isaiah informs her work with startup founders, or a former reporter for ESPN reflecting on the Bible's lessons for having normal political opinions in a world gone crazy. All we can say is subscribe to Good Faith Effort, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you get podcasts. Listen in to the inspirational, fun, crazy conversations about the Bible's surprising role in Western society you won't hear anywhere else. Okay, so my scenario that Boris will come back, uh, will will gallop back into power, you have, I think, pretty convincingly um, debunked. So who will, who is the next... I mean, it was interesting that maybe he hadn't quite reckoned with the fact that he was going to have to resign, but then he took time uh, the day before his resignation to um, to give a big hearty middle finger to your friend and mine, Michael Cove, um, firing him outright uh, for uh, for uh, the uh, long term suspicion that he had that Gove had done nothing but leak against him um, uh, low these many years. Um, yes, that's right. It was it was an amazing um, moment, really, that uh, as all these uh, cabinet ministers were, were queuing up to tell him to resign, um, Boris picked on one of them, Michael, um, and, um, and, and sacked him. He didn't sack any of the others. Uh, and um, and so Michael's out. And um, but he but he won't be out for long. You know, he's he's uh, it's, it's quite funny. The um, the left and the BBC and the media, who do nothing but attack Michael Gove for months and months, years and years. They, they, they will accuse him of absolutely everything that's, uh, that's wrong and monstrous and evil and incompetent. Suddenly, when Boris sacked him, uh, <laughs> he was a hero. And, uh, and, uh, and they said the, the most competent minister in the government, you know, the, the leading light of the ministry, <laughs> all this kind of thing, which they did uh, the moment that um, Boris had actually uh, sacked uh, Michael. Um, well, the fact is that Michael is the most competent um, man in the government, and therefore he will be in a, in a future ministry. He's not going to stand himself. He's, he's written that off. He's already tried twice and uh, doesn't want to go through that again, understandably. Um, but whoever does become prime minister, I think pretty much the first telephone call they'll make will be to, to Michael Gove. So who, if you were, if you were a betting man, and maybe you are a betting man, I, yes, I, I, I don't I know. Am, but if you were, yes. I, I am a betting man, but the, but the problem is that all of these odds are pretty, um, are pretty tight. You know, you, you, there are there are a dozen people I think who will stand, and um, all you're getting is sort of four to one, eight to one, um, seven to three, that kind of thing. It's it, you're not getting an, you're not getting wide enough for odds for. Uh, okay, so for this forget one. the odds. Let me put it this way. So, <laughs> let's take two different scales or two different ways you want to look at it. One of which would be. If you had your druthers, absent Michael Gove, if you had your druthers, if you had the ideal person in the conservative party by your lights, by your ideological lights and by your visionary lights that you would want, who would that be? And failing that, 
who do you, whom do you think would be, or who do you think? I can't even think of what my grammar is here, but who would be, <laughs> who would be like a politically savvy uh, uh, keeper of the of the Tory party's flame, who would not screw up and be incompetent or bad? Maybe wouldn't be exceptional or you know uh, transformational but could hold the line and be competent and, uh, you know, a, a good leader and restore the good name of the party and all of that. So your choice, your, your, your heart's choice and your head's choice, who would those be? Um, well, luckily there are quite a few of them, actually. The, um, uh, the last few years has thrown up some, some pretty impressive figures. Um, my, uh, my heart's choice I think would be a, a chap called Nadine Sahawi, uh, who is the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who strikes me as a very uh, savvy uh, political operator, and he's in favour of uh, low taxes. My um, uh, somebody who, who hasn't really been championing low taxes, but truly believes in them, but just hasn't had an opportunity to do them because of uh, COVID, is Rishi Sunak, um, the former. Chancellor, and I think that uh, with either of those two, you would have um, the best possible chance. And especially if one was Chancellor and the other was leader, and they got on with one another, that's another issue, of course, because in uh, traditionally in British politics, it's very rare for the Prime Minister and the Churchill and the uh, and the Chancellor to get on with one another. But if they did, uh, you'd have a tremendously uh, impressive team. I think Ben Wallace, the Se uh, Secretary of Defence has done very well over, um, over Ukraine. I'm always impressed by Priti Patel, the, uh, the Home Secretary, who was, uh, who's been extremely tough over immigration. And, um, and you have lots of other uh, people in the sort of next rank as well, and the rank after that, who actually, um, if they really um, got the party behind them, and if you didn't have the what you so rightly um, describe as the Cassius complex that uh, a lot of, of the losers in this race will, um, will possibly feel if, if you were able to unite the party. I think you've got five or six who could uh, beat uh, Keir Starmer in the next election. And frankly, I'd be very, very happy with any of them uh, on that basis. So what there's, there's, there's nothing happening. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I just want to, clarify this there's nothing happening in the on the uk right uh, among the tories in terms of the the intellectuals uh, and the and politicians akin to what's going on here in terms of sort of figuring out what it means what 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 type of conservative uh we are supposed to be right no no the the, the, the um i mean they're very sound on woke all of them uh they're very um uh, much of the same kind of uh, uh, conservative bent. The the one thing is 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 taxes. Um, some reckon that it's important to uh, increase corporation tax and national insurance, um, and others don't want to do that. And even the ones who do want to increase it are desperate to bring it down as quickly as possible, and certainly before the next election. So, insofar as there's an ideological um, 
fault line in the Conservative Party today. It's one on taxes, which, which you know, is a sort of <laughs> it's a pretty classic one. It's a grown up one. It's the one that we've had for the last sort of uh, fifty years. It's it's only in the in the uh, last few years that uh, that Conservatives on your side of the Atlantic and ours um, have sort of thought up lots of new ways to uh, disagree with one another. It's quite healthy, actually, just arguing about taxes, it strikes me. Do you, do you feel watching the American rights, um, I, I wouldn't call it a dissolution or a civil war, because uh, I don't think the, the forces of reaction um, are strong enough to uh, merit that, that appellation, but do you, do you think that they are uh, aping uh, sort of the Nigel Farage uh, version of British nationalism um, that has had a significant effect, though I don't think it's had a significant electoral effect. No, well, you're right. Certainly in this country, uh, Nigel is in many ways the most influential uh, politician um, of the post-Thatcher era, era, really, um, what he what he managed to do with uh, with Brexit, we do, of course, congratulate um, Boris and so on. But it couldn't have been done without uh, Nigel Farage. Um, but he's he's no longer. I mean, he's a TV host now. He's no longer in the um, electoral game. He was never elected, of course, uh, to Parliament, and neither were any of his. Um, party. So in that sense, our first past the post system works a bit like yours, um, uh, in that it, uh, it has, um, has kept him very much marginalised in terms of Westminster politics. But nonetheless, um, we, we, we do, even, even Thatcherite conservatives like me, uh, who consider themselves on the sort of centre right to right of the party, do look with slightly aghast at, uh, at American um, conservative politics at the moment. Uh, the, I mean, there are a lot of people who are watching the January 6th commission, for example, um, which is something that you know, people talk about at drinks parties here in, uh, in our English summer with, with sort of a shock and, and extreme surprise at, at the idea that uh, America could have ever got um, so far as it did uh, on that day. So um, uh, equally also your great abortion debate is something that completely passes us by. Um, I think there's a, uh, the, the support for tightening the abortion laws in, in this country the, in the latest polls was running at something like five or six percent. So we're a very different um, polity than you on, on these uh, issues, frankly. When it comes to Ukraine, you mentioned uh, Boris's uh, serious commitment that I think had the classic effect, the Thatcherite, the Thatcher effect on Bush and all of that to, to stiffen the American spine, be an example um, to the United States of how to look at, frame a foreign policy crisis in not only in practical terms, but also in larger moral terms. Um, do you see that? as a consensus view in the Tory party now, and therefore it won't really matter who the leader is because everyone is sort of on the same page here, or is this something that could be subject to revision and, uh, and, uh, and wobbliness as Thatcher would have said? 
not even just on the Conservative side, on the Labour side too. If Labour were to win a snap general election tomorrow, they, they also would be sending large amounts of lethal um, aid to help the Ukrainians. It's, uh, it's completely right the way across the board. It's believed in, it's supported by the Liberal Democrat Party as well. Um, literally, you have to go to the sort of extreme um, wing, the, the Corbynite um, view to see any, um, any weakening on this, any, any pro-Russian uh, feeling at all. So, um, so no, if, if, uh, whoever becomes leader of the Conservative Party will be totally stalwart um, when it comes to, to Ukraine and indeed the special relationship. One of the, one of the things that Conservatives are very happy about with regard to these last couple of uh, years, um, and there's not that much to be happy about, but the way in which the uh, special relationship has, we hope in your country, been underlined uh, by the fact that we do see eye to eye on Ukraine in a way that, frankly, the French and the Germans, uh, yet again, um, have uh, have failed to uh, um, to meet their promises with their um, with their actuality. So, uh, so yes, you don't have anything to fear on that front. Well, we have we have we we, we I think have reason to fear on our front, but but uh, so we'll see we'll see where that where that goes. Andrew, thank you so much again. Everyone should go. Get Andrew's George the Third biography. He did more than sing uh, "You'll Be Back," <laughs> or he was more than just a lunatic. Uh, and uh, that's uh, that's really the, the 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 reformation, the the restoration of his proper place in history was your was your goal here, and you succeeded brilliantly. And that book is is available everywhere, as is almost everything you've written. Except maybe for the dystopian novel, which I, I uh, which I, which no, I don't, listen, don't worry about that. It's got a sex scene in it, which it still makes me cringe. Okay, uh, I'm, so, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 going, so I'm, I'm finding do, it. I'm that. finding it. I didn't even know it existed <laughs> until you. I thought I was an Andrew Roberts completist, but here I am. <laughs> I'm, now I'm going to have to go. I think go. I bought up every copy of that uh, of that book. I don't think it's available any longer. Okay, well we have <laughs> we have we have friends and frenemies in common, and someone might have one on his shelf. <laughs> that I can, uh, that I can, that I can secure. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much. I'm hopeful that you will be able to read at greater length Andrew's views on this and more in the September issue of Commentary. Uh, we have uh, we have contracted for that purpose, but you know, things happen. But uh, Andrew is a very reliable, I will say, as a uh, as a scribbler, as uh, as his predecessor given. As someone would have said of his predecessor, Gibbon, scribble, 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 Mister <laughs> Mister Gibbon, uh, that is uh, that certainly is you. You have a you have a remarkable capacity for that. So we look forward to that, and we will be back to you tomorrow for Abe and the absent Noah and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.